this week on Writers Inc. Here's the thing: I've I've been invited to all sorts of things, and I very carefully avoid trying to get a classification because I I got this advice early on that if you get a classification, you have to be very careful about what you say. And if I don't know any secrets, I can just be the fool on the hill. And what I do is I tend to explore what I well, what is terra incognita, right? The terrain just ahead of us, the near future. And this is a really fraught place to be writing fiction about because if you get it wrong, your fiction is just absolutely ridiculous, you know, if you if you choose poorly. And and we all know that that writing novels is sort of like hunting with a musket. You better have good aim because if you miss what you're aiming at, it takes forever to reload. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Hello, everybody. This is Patrick O'Donnell. And J.P. Reinflush. And Kevin Tomlinson. Hey, and this is J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writer's Inc. Um, so before we get into everything, uh, do any of you guys use Instagram? Like, I, I think, am I the only one left on any kind of social media at no, this point? No, I don't. I don't oh, I, I, do. I do. I just copy from like, I just started using TikTok and then I'll just copy everything from TikTok to um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. I just blast it all out. I'm told my grid is terrible. <laughs> Your grid is terrible. Darn you. <laughs> uh, I've, I've got this company that I use. So I basically, I go on Instagram and then anything that I like on Instagram, they basically copy and share that across all the other platforms. So I only mm. have to deal with one of them. Um, and they, mm-hmm. they handle a bunch of different languages for me too. So I don't have to worry because there's, there's like Facebook and a gazillion different languages. Like most of the time we don't yeah. realize that, but, um, so they, they take care of all that for me. So I, I just, I popped into Instagram and I had a new link at the very top that said, this is the link for monetization and shops. And like, and I clicked on it and all it did was bring up a page that said, this is the link for monetization and shops. Like there was nothing there, just <laughs> that link. So I don't know if it was a fluke, like something that they're planning on rolling out and like the link was just visible for a little while or what, like it, it vanished and now it's back again. Uh, but there's nothing there, but, but Instagram is rolling out something related to monetization and shops. I just wanted to, to throw that out there. Cause it, yeah, I, I'm wondering if that, you know, like these types of services are, are going to create a viable way for us to sell books direct. Um, this might be a question for Joanna Penn cause I know she's all over this stuff, but yeah. Yeah, definitely a Joe question because she's this is her bailiwick as the yeah. futurist yeah. among us. <laughs> I would say, though, anyone that sees that, like consider what you may or may not be losing as because if it's like becoming a business page, because I know for a lot of people on TikTok, for example, uh, they don't switch their TikToks over to a business profile because there's some uh, rules about music that they can use right. and share. Uh, so just always be mindful as to what you're agreeing to before you hop in. Yeah, I, I learned that the hard way with Facebook. I had my my personal profile for years and then, you know, because of the multiple languages, you know, my Facebook rep said, "Well, you need to upgrade to a business account." Um, so I did that. And then I realized that like, I can't share my page with certain people. Um, they yeah. charge mm-hmm. me more for my post to be visible, like, because now they know you're a business instead of a person. They're like, oh, we're going to gouge this guy. Um, so they take advantage of it from, you know, from that standpoint. Um, I, I honestly, I don't, I don't see an upside to actually doing it other than, you know, because I have to deal with the, the multiple languages and stuff. I think that might be a necessity for that. But otherwise, yeah, I'd steer clear of all that kind of thing. Yeah. All right. Uh, what's in the news? 
All right. So first up, uh, there was a panel recently uh, titled Pandemic Era Booksellers Doing Well a Year Later. So this panel kind of talks about how bookstores that opened during the pandemic are now seeing increased sales and foot traffic traffic as pandemic restrictions have lifted. And uh, they're getting more personal connections with customers and community building. Uh, There's a return of book fairs and in-person meetings that have really helped with their businesses. And uh, they're just emphasizing the importance of their role in the community. Uh, I really liked this because I see this in a reflection of uh, my own town in Rockford. Uh, there's a independent bookstore, Maze Books, who has been doing an amazing job with uh, getting authors together and also creating events for the public that kind of highlights local authors. Uh, so I really wanted to see what your guys' take was on this. It, it makes me think that I'm slacking because we, we have a local bookstore that I was I worked with very closely when we first moved to the area and then COVID hit and like everybody kind of locked their doors. And he does a fantastic job of selling all my signed editions. So if anybody wants a signed edition of one of my books, like that's where my website directs them to and that sort of thing. Uh, but I haven't done an in-person at a bookstore in this area um, since COVID. Uh, I've done, let me see, three, four, four so far, um, but all out of state, outside of New Hampshire. Um, It makes me think I need to be doing more locally, to be honest with you. Yeah, I'm going to be doing my one of my first signings at our local bookstore. I live in Waukesha, Wisconsin. It's a town of about 60,000. And they have a really cool, you know, local bookstore. They're just super nice people. Going to be doing that. And then in April, I'm going to be doing a book signing in at a cigar lounge in town. Nice. I like that. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's like I went to one, um, Annie Schwartz wrote the Dahmer book monster. She was the reporter that broke the story and she had one at this cigar lounge. And I'm like, I didn't even know they did such a thing. And it was great. You know, <laughs> there's a huge turnout. It turned out great. So I talked to the owner. He says, yeah, I'll do that for you. And I'm like, cool. You know, it's, Honoré Corder was a guest on Joanna Penn's podcast late recently, and she was talking about geographical marketing, something that we don't always think about. And boy, that I'm just like, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, that that sounds like a really good idea. Yeah, you should not underestimate the impact that uh, that the local your local bookshops and other things can have. You know, and I like the idea, by the way, of of uh, targeting like cigar shops, or whatever. That's I've got this. This plan in motion. When I first moved to uh, the Austin area, I started reaching out to bookshops locally. I've done a couple of things, uh, and I'm slacking too, JD. So don't feel bad. But the um, I've started also approaching uh, like uh, coffee shops and uh, even like hotels and stuff, uh, resorts and things where um, you don't they don't normally get a lot of people you know, looking at doing something like this. And they're almost always looking for some kind of event to attract uh, members or just to to offer to uh, their customers or members. So it's not a bad idea to kind of mm-hmm. sniff around. And that can that can lead to bigger things like the, that can ripple outward. I know this is far afield of the bookstore discussions. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, kind uh, of but I think it all is relative. I mean, so I've been really focused on creating a local community of writers uh, to really make a presence in our local community. And that doesn't just mean bookstores, but that does mean like getting into more events, showing up uh, and showing that we exist as authors in the community, that we're creatives just as much as the visual arts uh, and looking for ways in which we can work with the community to kind of help not only bring our awareness, but help bring other writers into the fold. And uh, 
I know that this kind of expands outside of that bookseller thing, but I really think that booksellers and independent bookstores become those sorts of central hubs if they want to. Um, and I've just been really seeing that locally. So I thought that was cool. Next on the list, this one was titled Running a Big Publishing House is Not as Much Fun as It Used to Be. Uh, so this one was about uh, big publishing business uh, transforming and no longer possible for general trade book publishers to scale or grow organically. Uh, there's been some big changes in the industry in the past 25 years uh, for where books have come from and how customers acquire them. And ultimately, this article was talking about if big houses can't grow organically, uh, there are a few small houses to acquire and antitrust prevents them from contributing with each other, then they are doomed to a long, slow decline. So I was just curious what your guys' thoughts were on big traditional publishing. I have to say the first interesting tidbit that came out of this was that um, it was ever fun to run a publishing business. That was... <laughs> <laughs> that was remarkable for me to discover. At one point, I think they were having a good time. I, I think yeah. what, what's happening, and we've been seeing this for years, and it, it's just it's getting worse and worse. They've got their stable of well-known authors, the ones that are generating the actual income uh, for yeah. them. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's such a small percentage of the actual authors they have signed. It's the biggest percentage of revenue, of revenue, but the smallest percentage of actual people. Um, and that, that base of authors is getting older. Um, and I, I don't see them replacing them to the extent that they need to in order to like they, they need to replenish their stock essentially they need to they need new cattle in there and they're not doing it because they they just at this point they can't afford to do it they can't you know they're not paying the big advances not as much as they did before so they're not yeah. attracting anybody um and at, th at this point they honestly have to pay a big advance just to take people away from the the indie market you know five ten years ago the indie market was very much wild west but i think it sort of firmed itself up and somebody that actually knows what they're doing like you can make more money as an indie than you can with the traditional house. Um, and in this interview that we've got coming up with it, it's actually discussed, you know, a little bit, um, you know, if you play your cards right, you can actually flip this on its head. You know, you can basically indie, indie sell a title to the point where the traditional publishers raise their ears and, and you can walk in and say, okay, well, this is what I want from you instead of the other mm -hmm. way around. Um, yeah. so it's just, it's a very interesting dynamic, but none of those things are in favor of the traditional houses. Um, so until they become aware of that and are willing to actually change their ways, um, they're, they're in, they're in trouble. They, you know, I, I hate to see it you have to say it but it, that's what it feels like I, I feel like there's been this shift like the new aphorism could be that you know a good author never dies they just get ghostwritten like everybody's got <laughs> ghostwriters now you know i'm st i'm still reading like clive Cussler books you know that's another, you know, I, I think that's how they're doubling down, which I, I yeah. find unfortunate. Um, you know, Michael Crichton, um, his, his family just sold, I think it was six novels uh, to Blackstone Publishing that they're going to put yeah. out. These these are novels that he wrote back in college, um, you know, so, and they're going to be releasing those. Um, almost every author that I know right now, they're copywriting their titles under a trust instead of under their individual name because they can extend the yeah. copyright belong, you know, beyond what it would normally mm. be. Um, by doing that, by creating a trust, that trust could also have the right to continue publishing under that author's name if it's spelled out in the trust properly um, right. or vice versa. If, if you don't have the language in your trust to prohibit that from happening, that same trust could, could possibly make it happen if there's no way to to go against it, which is similar to what happened in the Tom Clancy case. You know, Tom Clancy's been gone for years, um, but he still has new product coming out. He's got a new TV, you know, the Jack Ryan series. If you watch it, he's a producer. He's one of the executive producers on there, but he's, right. he's dead. <laughs> you know, but he's, he's an executive producer. Um, yeah. That that's going to continue to get worse and worse. Um, and I, from a readership standpoint, I don't think anybody really cares. You know, like if, if they keep buying the books, it's it's really not going to matter. They're going to keep making the yeah. books. Yeah. 
That's uh, and that's that's an interesting twist, really, when you start to think about you know. And we talk about this in the interview a little. Uh, we've talked about this a lot, actually, with AI written stuff and and what's happening. It's like how discerning is the reader? Do they actually care? You know, it's uh, we're going to start questioning that a lot more in the future. I'm, I'm, I'm I have no idea where it's going. No, well, we're in this da- mm-hmm. this dangerous place where we might see the same 10, 15 authors in the bookstore from now on forever, you know, on, on those right. front shelves, you know, whereas they right. used to, you know, they would retire, they would die off that, you know, it would, it would be a constant flux, but not anymore. Um, you know, so we'll see where it goes. That's my soapbox for getting local and making sure that the local <laughs> community <laughs> knows who you are. I'm there with you, you <laughs> JP. I think that's actually a brilliant yep. answer to that problem because, um, you know, what are you in the business for? And and um, this is something I talk about a lot I, at conferences when I'm talking, uh, doing presentations or whatever. It's like, what is it that got you into the business? Was it was it money? That's the wrong answer because, you know, you may not ever see the money, Uh Mm-hmm. We all want to make a living, but money's kind of tough to to squeeze out of this business sometimes. But, you know, if your goal was I want to have a readership, I want to have a career as an author, I want to support myself with my words, you can do that just as easily locally as you can, you know, on an international stage. So, yep, it's worth it is worth looking into that. Check out your local bookstores. Uh, <laughs> okay, last last bit of news. This is from the New York Times, and it is when the novel swiped right. So it is an article that highlights how dating apps, which were often seen as a lackluster story in life, uh, has become sort of a highlight in recent um, romance novelists. Uh, they talk about how they've been using data, dating apps to enable characters to break free from traditional narratives about how people should meet. Uh, and for some writers, dating apps make it possible to bring together characters that might not otherwise uh, come into contact, be it race, age, class, etc. Uh, I just found this really interesting. Uh, the fact that usually romance authors are kind of on that like brink of new genres or new um, new trials in how they write. Um, and so I was curious on what your guys' thoughts were on how different genres kind of grow and expand based off of the technology that exists today. My new book that I'm getting ready to take out, it's, it's actually centers around an app um, that a husband and wife download and actually use together. Um, so as soon as you sent this article over, I did a quick copy and paste into my, my <laughs> press notes for, you know, for my agents and stuff to, to use when they're, they're out there working this book. Nice. Um, I, I mean, just, just reading, just reading the article, I think I got like three or four ideas for stories. Like there's so many cool ways you can bring people together, you know, with this versus, you know, the, the way it was done in the past. So Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's funny because my wife and I actually met the old fashioned way at the office. I was her boss's boss and I hit on her, you know, like if, if I did that in today's world, I'd probably be in jail or, yeah. or, or something, you know, like, <laughs> or at least HR, you know? <laughs> yeah. There'd be memos. There'd be a video I have to watch. There's, there's something that would, that would happen. Um, it, it's just, it's such a different world. I, I've never used a dating app, but and I'm going to put you guys on the, the spot here. Have any of you actually used a dating app before? Absolutely. I have. Oh yeah. I bought my wife on the internet years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I met, I met Kara on eHarmony. I met my wife on plenty of fish. There you go. <laughs> so I guess the answer is yes. Yes. The answer is yes. Did you want a simple answer? You don't get simple answers when you ask. Me. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm putting on my psychology 101 hat. 
you know, like in, in you know, like in, in my time, like when my wife and I met, we met at the office, you know, because we, we saw each other every single day and she, you know, we were around each other. That's just how those things played out. Um, this wasn't even, you know, on the radar at, at that time, but like, I can see it today, like actually, you know, bringing people together, you know, possibly yeah. bringing people together that you know, are more likely to stay together just because of the algorithms and things in place to, to hopefully feel those sort of things out. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting time. I'd love to see a study on, you know, marriages of people brought together, you know, basically the way I was the old fashioned way versus people that have gotten together on an app, um, you know, 10 years down the road, how many of them are still together just to see which of those things play out better. Um, but yeah. to get back to the article, I mean, it's, it, there's a ton of story ideas there. If people, if you're an author and you're not fishing that, that market, just looking at the tech, you, you need to be. Mm-hmm. Well, I can personally attest to yeah. some of the wackiness that I, went through when I was internet dating and I transfer that over to my stories. The book series that I'm writing right now, I it's in two out of the three books. You know, I have my main character go on these like crazy dates, you know, because of, you know, the dating app that he was using. And it makes for, you know, I was literally laughing out loud when I was typing this stuff because I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did this or, you know, or I can't believe she actually said that or did that or whatever. But I actually Mm -hmm. wound up meeting my wife that way. And what's interesting is like college age kids, that's how they're meeting, you know, partners. That's how they're, quote unquote, hooking up is they're swiping left or right. You know, and I'll tell like my college age kids, I'm like, whatever happened to going to a party or be in a bar and approach somebody face to face and start up a conversation, start hitting on them or whatever. And it's like you'll probably get your drink that their drink thrown in your face or or get tased or seed or something. (laughs) You know, I'm just like, it's a different world. This episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsor, Later Press. Later Press is a platform built to help authors declare independence. It lets authors create digital books and sell them directly to readers through a branded website. LaterPress is free to publish on and doesn't take any commission on direct sales. It's one of the most effective ways readers can directly support authors they love. Get started today at LaterPress.com. So, J.D., who is up this week? This week, we've got Daniel Suarez. He's the New York Times bestselling author of, of numerous titles, uh, including one of my personal favorites called Damon. Uh, his latest is called Critical Mass and released on January 31st. Here he is, Daniel Suarez. All right, we are in. So, uh, Daniel, I'm I'm glad to be chatting with you. Uh, I have seen some of your work and I, I've kind of uh, followed you for a while uh, and seen what you're writing about and how you... I've, I think I actually watched a TED talk with you. Is that right? That's possible. Yeah, if it was on lethal autonomy, that was uh, in in Edinburgh in 2013. You know, a nice light subject like that, uh, autonomous robotic weapons. Yes, you. we thriller writers like to keep it light, uh, keep things very sunny. <laughs> uh, what you, that actually kind of ties in, well, we definitely want to talk about your new book. Um, sure. The things that I'm really interested in, and I think that our, our listeners are really going to be interested in, are, uh, you know, right now we seem to be at a crossroads of technology uh, with the, everything is going AI. And I am yeah. I am always willing to talk AI uh, and what I think the future of AI could, could mean for the future of humanity. Uh, but I really want to hear your perspective because you are well, much better studied on this than i am yeah actually my my inbox runneth over these days it's i uh, bet because 
<laughs> my first book, Damon, back, I uh, wrote it in 2000, actually from 2002 to 2004, self-published it in 2006 because no established publisher, or at least no literary agent, felt that it was mainstream enough. They thought it was too technical. And I was of the opinion that technology was front and center in most people's lives at that point, especially young people. And that a lot of the decisions that were being made about technology and how it was deployed were going to shape the future. And I, I wanted people to be more aware of that. I, it certainly was a big concern of mine because I worked in the technology industry at the time. I was a software developer. I ran a company that designed big logistical software systems uh, for moving things around. And so I, was, I had a front row seat for how society operated with software and, and how much power it had, it, how much power it wielded over people's daily lives. And that's what I was trying to get across in my first books. Uh, so I self-published that and it, Damon in 2006 and it started to take off. And then it started to spread through places like Microsoft and Google and Apple and the developers there were reading it. And whereas I could not get an, a literary agent, I mean, I sent out, I know exactly the number, I sent out 49 letters to literary agents and I was fortunate enough to get two responses, both of them rejections. But that was my experience of the mainstream publishing at the time. And as I said, they felt that it was too technical. But by the time I was sell selling a couple thousand books a day, uh, self-published, and it just kept expanding, then Wired Magazine did an article, I believe it was in 2007, maybe 2008, I think it was 2007. And then every literary agent called me. Yeah. And, and then I had movie studios calling me, and it was kind of crazy. So this goes back to what you were talking about in terms of AI, because the subject matter of Damon was that a game developer, he leaves behind a Damon, that is a, a bot, a software yeah. bot that is monitoring the web for the appearance of his own obituary. And when it appears, he begins to activate things that starts to affect society. Now, this was uh, this book got on the New York Times bestseller list in 2008. So this was uh, five years before Ready Player One. So it was a bit earlier than that. Those two stories share cosmetic similarities. They go in very different directions. So I'm not saying that Ready Player One is in any way derivative of it. This is a sort of a common thing. You know, you have these core ideas that are possible suddenly, and then a bunch of people will write on that. I was fortunate enough to be one of the first to really dig into it in detail. Uh, what really got strange about that is I went from not really having anybody talk to me in terms of literary agents, not being willing to do that to then suddenly being talking to all sorts of people. And then Penguin Random House, their Dutton imprint picked it up. They printed it. Uh, and then we translated, I think, into 13 languages. It was a real whirlwind. And it was it was a lot of fun. And it was also eye opening because among the first people to get in touch with me was the Pentagon, uh, the intelligence services, partly because of what the book was about. Yeah. And what was happening was that their people were reading the book and saying, well, this is ridiculous, I think. But then they'd step through each and every moment a scene in the book and say, you know, actually, this could happen. So right. uh, maybe we should be talking to this guy. Are they have they invited you to sit in on the red cell yet? Are you, you gonna <laughs> sit with Brad Thor? No, I here's the thing. I've <laughs> I've been invited to all sorts of things and I yeah. very carefully avoid trying to get a classification because I, I enjoy I got this advice early on that if you get a classification, you have to be very careful about what you say. Yes. And if I don't know yes. any secrets, I can just be the fool on the hill. And what I do is I tend to explore what I 
well, what is terra incognita, right? The terrain mm -hmm. just ahead of us, the near future. And this is a really fraught place to be writing fiction about because if you get it wrong, your fiction is just absolutely ridiculous, you know, if you if you choose poorly. Yeah. And and we all know that that writing novels, it's sort of like hunting with a musket. You better have good aim because <laughs> if you miss what you're aiming at, it takes forever to reload. And, right. you know, this this was a thing where I have, I don't want to say it's my brand so much as it is, it, it is my inclination to want to write about pressing technologies that are about to transform the world, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I send my feelers out. I am constantly talking to people in tech and in investment, people in the military, uh, elsewhere, hackers, to try to understand what technology is coming down the pipe. And... I think that it's been made possible by the fact that I did write Damon, so that the network of people I have who are who are reaching out to me when something happens. Uh, for example, I wrote a book called Kill Decision, which was about lethal autonomy, which would, mm -hmm. that is robotic weapons. And you know, part of that was people who work in the military saying to me, "Hey, you know, I have concerns about this," and so I'll I'll be sort of forewarned about it earlier, and then I'll start to dig into those subjects, avail myself of the network that I have and try to learn more about it and how it might affect society. So I think if I, again, have a brand, it's that I try to analyze how technology might change society, what the second and third order effects might be. And they're always quite complex. So I try to tell a, a gripping, exciting story about that so that mainstream readers can understand the nuances of these technologies uh, that might not be yeah. so apparent. Yeah, you put in a lot of technical research. Is it all just chatting with people that you know are in the industry or what what else are you doing that's actually the most fun part yeah and i would say you know one of the really great things when i wrote my first book damon that was a labor of love it was something i was intimately familiar with that is um, i had written software that had controlled the movements and it sounds bizarre saying this but this is the type of thing that can happen in modern day software that i'd helped written told hundreds of thousands of people what to do day to day, you know, mm -hmm. whether trucks and trains and ships left and went to certain locations was determined by software that I wrote. And so writing a book about that, I didn't really have to tap too many experts. I, I intimately understood that. But having done that, it then connected me with a network, network of people who responded to those books and who had all sorts of subject matter expertise that I could then, so it sort of gave me a Rolodex of people that I could tap or people who would say, Hey, you know, I loved your book. Have you thought about this? And that would result in a really great conversation. Yeah. So that part of the research is the most fun part where you're meeting people, talking to them. Uh, you know, there's of course a lot of reading. There's a lot of going yeah. through books. Once you, cause I don't like to go to an expert, especially ask an expert uh, questions until I've done at least a modicum of research. Cause I, I don't want to, I don't want the, my first question to them be something that a Google search could easily answer. Yeah. So, of course, they can elaborate beyond the Google search. So that's that's the bonus. You well, can always yeah. pretend like, well, I could get this on Google or I've seen this on Google, but. <laughs> yeah, but also, you know, you, you don't want to text because a lot of these people, their time is very worthwhile. So yes, if you have an yeah, expert yeah. in, let's say, uh, you know, genetics and they're running some Harvard lab. You're like, hey, I don't want to ask you. So what is what is DNA? You know, you don't want to start there. Uh, <laughs> right. you, you want to ask about, you know, the the strains of mitochondria that they have growing and which lines are more productive. You see, that sets a nice tone. So basically, you try to do a bit of research up front. 
That's that, how do you uh, how do you guide that? You know, sometimes it's difficult to know where to start uh, yeah. when you when you're going to Google stuff. Uh, you know, and I Google a fair amount for my. We, we all uh, have to. Yeah. Duck, duck, go, whatever it is now. <laughs> whatever, yeah. The the one that gives me the most privacy, duck, duck, go. That that's the one I use the most now. But well, that kind of goes into the Chat GPT discussion because yes, I think- well, let's just let's dive into that because I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we talked about, uh, I, I don't know when in sequence this interview will air, but we, we were just talking about chat GPT and of course and writers would, right? Yeah, of course. It's a big thing. Just right like now. artists are talking about mid journey. Yes. Yes. Another tool that I, that I personally like, I like both and I, and I, I am not as alarmed by either one as, as others seem to be. Uh, yeah. But I, I'm very curious to hear your take on it. We must adapt to survive is really I agree. what it is. You know, <laughs> that's what it, I it think is, too. It, this is a pattern that I sort of notice that, let's say from my 15 years of doing this, is that every single new technology arrives and, and on a scale, it, it either centralizes or distributes power, whether it's mm-hmm. personal power. And let's call it agency, distributes agency. So in this case, this is a, a very democratizing tool However, the follow-on effect of that is it will create a profusion of, of new art. We'll, we'll put quotes around it because yeah. you know, there's, there's a big part of me that feels that if there is no seat of consciousness uh, in, in the person or the entity creating the art, that it's questionable whether it is art. You know, Now, that may not make a big difference if it's, uh, somebody wants to just produce a, a large amount of titles and they have some entertaining ideas and, and really the... the precise expression is not the point. Uh, for me, I really, I take a great deal of value in seeing what a person, an author that I care about, what they're thinking. It's a, it's a very intimate thing, re- reading and writing a book. I've found that books can really make people upset or really make people love you as, a, as an author, because yeah. it's nothing more intimate. You know, you watch a TV show that is art by committee. You have a whole bunch of people get together they come up with the script and then they have to light it, shoot it, put all the C, you know, VFX into it. But with the printed word, it's a straight shot right to your cerebrum. And so it's, you, it, it's, sort of a, it's sort of a seduction in a way. And if you botch that, the, you, you can get people upset. You know, they, they get upset about your stories uh, yeah. or they, they love them. So again, that does require that there be a, a there there, a person behind it. So how does that change if you're reading a story written by an AI? Uh, I personally would like to know if I am. I'd like to, to know if it was written by an AI. It could still be entertaining. Yeah. But, you know, be a weird thing to be deeply moved by a story that has been created by something that doesn't even know what a car is or what a blue sky is. Not, you know, it's mimicry. I'd say, though, that it, there is an argument that we have, as human beings, we have been uh sort of participating in this kind of thing since the very beginning of time i mean we yeah. fire how many times have we looked up <laughs> in the sky and made a story out of the out of the uh, stars and or saw patterns in the clouds like we form these patterns and we will form emotional attachments to them so it's a it's a very interesting philosophical debate i think <laughs> Well, we're, we're going to be having it for a while. And, we and are. Gonna see, it's going to come in waves because we're yeah. going to see what jobs it comes for and what new jobs it opens up. Uh, I think you hinted at it just a few minutes ago. It's like we, we are going to, this could be a great tool. So yes. uh, I've heard some 
very interesting ways it can be used. For example, uh, people in a classroom, you know, they, they have a, their phone, they have it open to chat GPT and they can ask it questions to define terms that the lecturer is speaking of. And if they're a little behind in the class, they can get that personalized sort of side channel discussion to keep them up without slowing the whole class down. And that's just one example. And, and I read that recently and people were doing that already. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, writing tool, idea, creation, on and on and on. So I don't know. No, we'll have very, various uh, purists, people who want to go organic, you know, writing. It's like this is, you know. See, but there, there you are. Grown we, fiction. Yeah. We have a, now another market, if you will. Like there will be the the AI-assisted market, and then there'll be the organic market. And yes. people can choose what they want to consume. Right, yes. That's what I think. And until we have AI readers, I think, it, you know, then, then it'll be supremely efficient. And I think AI AIs can write stuff that... my stuff. <laughs> That's right. I think they do love my stuff. The demon yeah. was very, very popular with people. It, it, yes. it was funny because that story in particular, I think, mirrors more closely what's going on right now yeah. with GPT and DeepMind and things like that. As yeah. it's often brought up to me, depending on what is going through the news cycle, my inbox will just fill up. I was like, uh-oh, what happened? You know, <laughs> was, was it drones? Was it CRISPR genetic editing? Was it narrow AI bots? But in this case, it's a situation where we've often seen, like in movies like Lawnmower Man and Transcendence, where a, a singularity, an all-powerful computer takes over the world. Right. And I think what things like chat GBT show is that really a narrow AI, that is a, one that is not self-aware, uh, yeah. can have tremendous effects. Because you, you think about what can be achieved by one person in social media with a chat GBT bot. They can set it up to monitor for the occurrence of certain phrases yeah. and then respond to those people. And they can be 10,000 or 100,000 people online intentionally inflaming or calming down or doing whatever they want, but it can be a magnifying effect uh, on a, for a single individual. So we will see all of these things unfold in the next few years. I am here for it. And uh, to all hey, our future stage. technological overlords, I bid you welcome. Uh, so let's shift, let's shift slightly. Uh, because I do want to talk about the new book, Critical Mass, which is the second book in um, the, the Delta V series. In a planned trilogy, that's correct. In a planned it's unusual trilogy. for me. It's unusual for me. I typically write books. Uh, my first two books were a pair, duology. Okay. And then I was doing single books. And then space, private space exploration in particular, has been a key focus of mine in recent years because I think it's very important. Yeah, um, with good reason, yeah. And, and, I, and I'd like to say also that it's important not just for enthusiasts of, about space, even mainstream readers who have no interest in space. I would assure them that space has a great interest in them in the sense that I think uh, humanity uh, extending our industry and economy into space is going to be absolutely critical to try to get through what I think are some key time-sensitive, let's say urgent challenges for humanity, uh, both climate change as well as economic development and and avoiding conflicts so many things depletion of resources species extinction you know yeah. i like to think of it that you know we are in this container which is the atmosphere of earth and it is finite and there's seven and a half billion of us eight billion of us now and as more and more people get into a first world of living standard that mm -hmm. that is going to be taxed more and more heavily so it's it's a real key answer 
So this goes into how I do my fiction, I suppose, is what I take is this very complex issue that people will have really strong feelings about. And they may have some facts wrong. They may have some facts right, uh, kind of a mix. And I try to go out and find out what is the truth of it. And if there's differing opinions, what those opinions are. And I try to wrangle it into a story that brings some of that nuance in, but helps equip people to understand. And I always find that rather than a white paper or an essay, a story, a narrative has this great ability to make people feel something about it. And, and there's that old adage that, you know, I can't remember what they said, but I remember how they made me feel. We, yeah. We, yeah. we recall feelings very strongly. So when I get an email from someone says, you know, oh, I'm a grandmother or so, and I didn't really understand gaming culture with my grandson, but having read your book, I totally understand it. And now we're getting along much better. And I thought, you know, that's great. If I can take a, what is really a complex topic and help people understand it and where it's going, that's sort of what I'm, what I'm aiming at. Do you find that, that most of your work is uh, sort of cautionary? You know, it's evolved. I would say initially it is cautionary. Uh, like Damon was very much yeah. so. Kill Decision, again, Kill Decision was a book I wrote in 2011 that was about drones uh, doing assassinations in the United States. And, and then I did my TED talk about that. And really, I was trying to reach several audiences there. But you know, my work with Human Rights Watch on the, the Stop Killer Robots campaign, all that stuff had to do with a cautionary tale. Uh, I have come to conclude that cautionary tales are really you know, they're a good thing to try to do, but it's amazing. Uh, let, let's take Isaac Asimov's uh, Three Rules of Robotics. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I wrote a, an essay for Wall Street Journal years ago, and it was, you know, let's listen to Asimov. Let's, let's not give the decision to, to kill people to an algorithm. Let's not do that. And it was funny. It was like not two weeks after that was technologically possible that it started to be being built in various parts of the world. So you know, and I name those spots. It's, uh, you know, the DMZ between North and South Korea, some yeah, of yeah. the sniper stations there. They are not currently activated where they can kill people automatically, but they have that ability. Like that, that feature can be switched on should hostilities arise. And there's yeah. various other places in the world. And now that Ukraine has kicked off, it's it, drones are all over the place there. That's the, the, tr the trouble at the heart of it, I think, is that we, <laughs> we might have our three laws uh built into our tech uh but right. it doesn't mean that those who might oppose us are going to agree to those same rules it's almost like uh the nuclear arms race in a way like we're all going to have to agree not to not to oh, eliminate yeah. mutually assured destruction yeah, i think exactly. the argument that i made in my ted talk and in my fiction of that and this goes back to your question about cautionary tales and i would see people on one side saying it's not moral and i'd see people on the other you know, people who are in defense uh, and elsewhere saying, but is it moral? Here we're building a machine that will be more calm and dispassionate and it is less likely to harm people or commit war crimes because it won't be fearful and so on. And I thought that that was not the only issue. I thought the issue, and this came about as a result of all, all the research that I'd done and also uh, some deep thinking about human nature and that was that democracy, representative uh, government, exists because uh, we, we have checks and balances on power. Mm -hmm. And when you have robotic weapons, you are really focusing 
ultimate power into very few hands. And it's extremely unaccountable in the sense that who's controlling these machines? Who runs the algorithm? Who updates them? And if something goes wrong, who's responsible? So what I was trying to get at was if these machines do exactly what we tell them to do, that might actually erode democracy in the sense that you could conduct a full-scale war without having buy-in from the populace. And that's a fundamental thing in a free society. So time will tell whether or not uh, that cautionary tale made a difference. But in the meantime, of course, you want to make it entertaining. You want to make it interesting. And also when people see the news years later, they go, oh, my God, I I remember that from the book. That's a real thing. And then hopefully they're a bit more informed about it. And and also they had a good read. That's the hope. How often have you uh, predicted something that turned out to to evolve into reality? You know, (laughs) <laughs> a, a lot, unfortunately. And and actually, I remember giving a speech. It was at an intelligence agency. And I remember starting my speech by saying, if I am the expert on this, we are all screwed. And we got a big laugh because I'm basically, you know, this guy. Yes, I have some technical background and I have good contacts, good people who, who keep me in touch with what's going on. And I am constantly learning, yeah. constantly availing myself of new information. But you know, I, I have a pretty good track record, which I don't know whether that's good or bad news, because if you've read my books, it's, it's you know, it, it, it can be alarming, some parts of it. I'm thinking of Change Agent. Again, that was a book about CRISPR and yeah. designing custom babies, things like that. So we shall see. Uh, I have a good track record, and whether that's good for us is, is hard to say. I think it's good for us. Well, good. Uh, my new books are about space and they're, they're not cautionary tales. They're much more aspirational. Yeah, no, I, I, here's why I think it's good for us. It's, it, it is good for us because it is the non-destructive preview of what we, you know, we rarely get an opportunity to go back and fix the mistakes we've made, but if we can predict them in advance, yes, sort of minority report style, I guess, but exactly. (laughs) Then we can avoid, avoid that path. Well, that's one thing fiction does, right, is you can prototype futures, and, and that is a far cheaper way to avoid these pitfalls, hopefully. And, and you know, it's, it's tough to find examples where knowing that bad things happen, that we then followed that advice, but at least, you know, to have to avail ourselves of that, I think yeah. is really worthwhile. Prototyping the future is something I'm going to steal from you. Uh, oh, I, I think I stole it from other people. I think that's a, that's a phrase <laughs> at this point. I think it's in the public domain. Is it? Okay, well, good. Then I can freely use that. Uh, so now I'm going to give you credit for it. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so um, I want to loop back because you 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 mentioned that you self-published first. And, uh, you know, I'm in the self-publishing world pretty heavy. And uh, so are a lot of the people listening i love a good success story uh from self-publishing was yeah. that when you uh started getting approached by publishers and agents and that sort of thing was there any hesitation or any question about whether you should do that I- i'm always oh my god that. yes yeah because for probably the reasons you can easily understand having having done self-publishing as well and i'm sure to me I am a dinosaur in terms of self-publishing because, again, I did all this in 2005, 2006, yeah. something like yeah. that. Uh, and I'll tell you the sort of de- details. You could tell me whether it's too much detail. But it was basically back in those days, there was still a stigma attached yeah. to self-publishing. Uh, I think that has changed, thankfully. But back in the day, you know, if you were doing a vanity press, people would shrug. But to me, I wanted to get my book out there. And I was convinced that if people had a chance to read it, that 
they would respond and that the book would have a future. And yeah, that turned out to be a very correct instinct. But my wife, Michelle, and I, we sat down and we tried to figure out how to do it. Now, I already had a software company. Now, Ingram at the time used to do the backlist publishing for or, yeah. you know, printing of books uh, for the big publishers, but they wouldn't deal with individuals. And what appealed to me about that is they were a highly efficient operation. Remember that I had mentioned earlier that I, I designed logistical systems, software. And one of the good things about Ingram at the time, and this may not be the, the case now, but they were co-located in Tennessee across the street from, from an Amazon facility. So yeah. I knew as far as fulfillment went at the time that if I set up a subsidiary of my software company and did business directly with Ingram, so we, we created a subsidiary, defunct, we don't need it anymore, but... And we signed up with Ingram to do the publishing for us. The book was put up on Amazon and then it was easily made available and people could get it within 48 hours and we didn't have to do any of the fulfillment. So that worked out very well. Yeah. So ultimately what happened was we were selling one or two books a week and I was trying to get the book to tech people, essayists, uh, columnists that I read very often in technology, people who I knew and, or felt convinced were going to be interested in that book. Then some of these were people who wrote for eWeek and, and PC, people I'd been reading for years. And I was amazed how many of them responded really yeah. positively. And it, I would say for those trying to, to break in, you don't need to find your entire audience. You just need to find the one or two or three people who will connect you with your audience. You know, people with a platform who'd say, oh my God, this, you have to check this out. And it's finding those people. So it's less daunting to describe it that way rather than say, oh, I have to find a million readers. Yeah. No, you don't. Because some of your readers are going to help you find your audience if, if, you know, they engage with your work. So that to me was the benefit of self-publishing. We had agency, we had some control about how to do it, the timing of when to do it, and uh, every single aspect of it, the cover of the book and so on. It was really rewarding. So when the book took off, I was fielding phone calls from everywhere. And my response early on to agents getting in touch with me was, well, what do you offer me now? Why would I do that? Why would I cede any control? Why would I get a mainstream publisher if I'm already selling many books Every, you know, every day. And yeah, I don't see the, the benefit. And one agent in particular said in answer to that question, you know, and again, the question was, what, what, what can you offer me that I don't already have? And the answer was, well, why don't we fly you out to New York and we'll put you in front of some big editors and they can tell you what they can offer you. And I thought, well, oh, that is a really good answer. Yeah. And so they did that. And it turns out in 2006, the answer you know, early 2007, I should say. The answer was translations, audiobook, advertising yes. support, you know, all of that stuff. And I was still hesitant. And then they offered a great deal of money on top of that. And that helped to convince it. That that does tend to grease wheels. Yeah. Uh, and and this was 2007. You know, if you remember, the, the economy was starting to fray at the edges. And so it was, I always laugh about this and say, you know, if it was a sound economic decision to become a novelist, at that time that 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 was just showing how bad the economy was but right. yeah it it was really an adventure it really was and the good thing is my wife and i got to go through it together because yeah. she helped to fashion the marketing and the look of the book all that stuff so it was really a collaborative effort and so this whole journey has been that that's an that is an excellent uh, origin story by the way yeah. um 
Yeah, I and I you and I kind of went in we sort of flip-flopped. I you know, I had a traditional contract first ah. and then self-published. Oh, that's that interesting. How did that go? What are your uh, feelings? Terribly. About? That was horrible. <laughs> uh, and for all the reasons you just outlined, because I had no leverage, I had no insight, I had n- nothing um really to empower me on my side. Yep. So where you came at it was uh you were able to say you know, what are you going to do for me? I didn't have that option at all. Yeah. And that's that you, you really, you, you focused on it. And that is so true. And that is that, that issue of perceived uh, fear of missing out that FOMO means Mm -hmm. so much in leverage in terms of negotiations. I routinely adopt that with regard to film rights for my books as well. So for instance, I typically I prefer producers and other people, book scouts, to approach me because then you're in a very different dynamic than if you're shopping a book around Hollywood. Now, of course, don't always have that choice, right? But right. that is the ideal situation to get in. And yeah. it, is, it is now, I think, quite accepted that people would go the self-publishing route and then can then get a very lucrative uh, traditional publishing deal and then go back and forth. Uh, and I actually think having worked a slush pile, my, my first job out of college was working at uh, Dodd Mead, it's a mm. publishing company in New York. And, and I would, you know, write the rejection letter. So I really can sympathize. I was on the other side of that. And I think it is a cool and efficient system, this idea that you go out and find an audience, however you can. And then that factors into whether publishers want to publish you because I think you've, you've probably encountered this before where people say, hey, could you read my book and maybe connect me to a publisher? And I think the yeah. very first thing a publisher is going to say nowadays is, who's your audience? You know, yeah. Show me what your social media profile and everything Isn't else that is. Isn't that interesting, though? It's almost backwards from what you would expect, but you know, you, now yeah. you, you would really need to come in with an audience, which is why I think self-publishers have a kind of an advantage uh, in entering the publishing world because we... We come in knowing we have to have an audience. We have to have an audience. Yes. You know? Yeah. Uh, and for me, I, yeah. I was right at this critical time when it was, it was transitioning, it being the publishing industry. Um, it wasn't quite sure whether self-publishing was you know, uh, unimportant or important. The Kindle was just coming out. Right. You right. know, And you know, Twitter was just coming alive. So really, social media was taking shape. I mean... You know, you and I were just talking a second ago about AI and how that's going to affect the industry. So yes. basically, we, we had this good long period of stability from, oh, I don't know, 2008 to 2017 or whatever. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like these cycles, the changes that have occurred in publishing and media over these last 20 years, say, have just been right. head spinning. And right. one, one would imagine that, well, take Google, for example. I, and this, this may upset some people, I know Google, maybe not, I don't know. Maybe they don't work there anymore after uh, yesterday. <laughs> but when it comes to search terms, I think we've all seen a change over the years in terms of the quality of return results in search. And I think that's because you know there's a lot of SEO, search engine optimiz- uh, optimization going on. So right, you know, right. you're getting things that other people want you to see rather than perhaps your search results. Right. So now G- chat GPT if that took the place of Google and instead of doing a Google search, you just ask and it gives you one answer. It's a very different world. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, what is the answer and who gets to decide? So, and of course the danger there is how, how much can you trust the answer? Because exactly. 
Exactly. You know, this AI, sometimes it just makes stuff up. I mean, it just is amazing. It, when it uh, gets it wrong, it gets it spectacularly it gets it wrong. Very wrong, but very convincing. Though. Oh, yes. Very convincing. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's room for some kind of hybrid approach there. I think it's going to be a combination of chat GPT and Google for a while uh, until someone oh, yeah. decides. Yeah, where well, you go, wait a minute. What are you saying? I'm going to double check that. And then you, you go check. But, yes. Yeah. I got one last question for you before we have to wrap up. Uh, and it's one that everybody gets asked. So uh, that is, what advice would you give a new and aspiring writer? I would say enjoy the journey uh, as much as the destination, because, you know, I fondly remember every step of my career, you know, some of those early times where, you know, I really wanted to find an audience, you know, it, mm -hmm. it's, I don't want to say it's innocent in, in a way, because I know a, a great deal more about the publishing industry and the film industry and everything else. Um, just remember to, that it's not just the destination because it's uh, never really a destination. I, I don't, for example, I, if I look back at where I am now, I would be so thrilled, but you're constantly evolving. Right. So always, always take some time to enjoy that moment, you know, uh, how much you love writing, for example, how much you, how much you want to connect with people, those things. That's true no matter where you are in your career, you know, and you, you, you got to try to enjoy those steps too. All right. So the first question I have for everybody is um, how often have you written something that was completely fiction that ended up prototyping the future? <laughs> it hasn't happened yet, but you never know, right? I don't want what JD's writing to prototype the future. <laughs> You know, I was I was thinking about this, though, because I, I read this book, um, I guess, before Dutton picked it up. It was still an indie published title. So 2007, somewhere around there. Um, and the topics that he nails in, in this book, you know, like it, it seemed so far fetched at the time. But, you know, a good half of them have probably played out. And, you know, the other half are just in development, you know, like the augmented reality glasses that he has in, in that series. Um, you know, Apple, I think, is rolling those out this September. Um, you know, so like <laughs> he's he's hit so much of it on on the head and the funny thing is like that's not even his profession like he brought it up like he does ted talks <laughs> but it, it's mainly just because he's an extremely good researcher um and yeah. he's very good at at you know explaining the the tech to the layman you know based making making it understandable to the rest of us mm -hmm. yeah yeah i uh i haven't I haven't written anything that is particularly pertained to like the, uh, future, but what I do is, uh, I have a background in biochemistry and I love using that, especially when like writing short stories. So like I explore in a post-apocalyptic world, how to revitalize diesel, because to me that's interesting because obviously that sort of fuel doesn't actually work like we think it does in the movies. Um, or, you know, I'll spend years of research on how to colonize Mars or Venus just because I want to learn that stuff. Uh, so I really enjoyed kind of how uh, he also likes doing that research and forward thinking um, methods. Yeah. You know, honestly, like he brought up uh, chat GPT, you know, too, you guys were talking about that and how it's not accurate, you know, to, but it, but it's great at selling itself, you know, like it'll, it'll present mm -hmm. the wrong answer. So incredibly clear. You feel like it's the right answer. It makes yeah. me wonder if you were to do a hybrid of what you just said, like if you were to create a web page that basically touted yourself as an, an expert on something and you named a bunch of facts that you basically make up 
just I'm a fly about something. You know, the, these chat serve the you know the, the AI services are basically going to crawl that page. They're going to take that as you know the Bible, and they're going to start oh, quoting yeah. it as if you're correct. So you could basically tell your own story and, and put your own spin on this if you wanted to. At least until the the AI is smart enough to realize that you're you're full of shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you've ever asked ChatGPT to uh, to give you a bio of yourself, but it, it, it it'll do mine, and it's like <laughs> I'd, I'd call it like eighty five percent accurate, but then it attributes several companies and other things to me that I had nothing to do with. So I actually um, have had my the experience I typically have is uh, I'll write something that's really uh, ba- I'll I'll take a piece of history and then I'll spin something off of that that I am completely making up. I mean, just 100% fiction. Uh, and then people will start emailing me after the fact, or they'll, you know, say something to me in person sometimes that, you know, yeah, I read about that, that thing, uh, that you wrote about this, you know, whatever, something to do with a Mayan God or whatever. And I had no idea that that was a thing that I went and looked into it and it was fascinating. I fell down a rabbit hole and like somehow my brain created actual history uh, based on something I maybe read it casually at some point. Have you ever got a phone call from the Pentagon because they were worried about what you had just written? Uh, so not <laughs> yet, yeah, but I, I suspect I'm on some watch lists, so. <laughs> that's that's got to be a crazy vibe, too. I, I mean, if you think about the way this book played out, you know, it, you know, it, it made its uh, its rounds through the tech circles first, you know, like he had mentioned at yeah. Google or Microsoft and those kind of places. And then, yeah, the military people picked it up um, and saw some of the applications that, that you know, he was basically coming up with. Um, yeah. There was a think tank that came together right after 9-11 where they actually brought a lot of authors together to try and come yes. up with, you know, worst case scenarios mm. for for strikes. And I, if Dan's not on that particular think tank or involved in He's that, not, he really I, needs to be. I actually asked him about that. So they, that's called Red Cell, or at least one of them mm-hmm. is. And Brad Thor is one of the authors that that they tap for that. So is Michael Bay, which I find interesting. And, uh, you know, I did a- I did ask Daniel if he was a part of that. I liked his answer because uh, your first instinct when someone reaches out to you is like, hell, yeah, I'm going to be a part of some secret, you know, panel to discuss, you know, whatever. But, you know, he had a good point because once you're on something like that, once you get a security clearance, you're you're pretty much beholden to the government yeah. <laughs> about everything you ever write and say. So, mm-hmm. I know what does it, it, it's probably worth attending one of those meetings just to see a PowerPoint done by Michael Bay. <laughs> I would love to, every other every transition is an explosion with people flying out of the screen. <laughs> yep, with real pyrotechnics that somehow got in the <laughs> Pentagon. One day I will tell you guys the story I have of Michael Bay and uh, his interference in something I was producing. So not this day, but one day. <laughs> going back to the, the, the book he had mentioned finding your audience um but they just kind of touched on like you know he basically got the books in hands in the hands of other tech people and then they basically you know touted it off to five or ten other people i mean every book sale that i've or every book i've ever seen that's done well including the, the few of mine that have, have sold well it's all been word of mouth like there's you can mm-hmm. only you can spend as much money as you want on advertising and that yeah. kind of thing but like the word of mouth is what really kicks it over and and gets people yeah. you know screaming about it um but yeah, like he it sounds like he actually sought out it his audience and like i've never actually thought about that before but you know in a lot with a lot of books you really could mm-hmm. yeah there's no better feeling than having people promote your work for you unsolicited you know and and it it really does spark yeah. something and you know when it comes out of left field and all of a sudden you're like wow you know i just sold a bunch of books i wonder why and you start backtracking a little bit and you're like 
wow, the person put something in social media or whatever the case may be. And again, it kind of, you didn't solicit it. You didn't think it was going to happen. Boy, that's there's no better feeling. There's an ancient saying that I am just making up right now uh, that all marketing <laughs> is really just aimed at one person. And that one person is the person who's going to spread it around to everybody else. <laughs> mm-hmm. And for any tips out there, I'm going to get back on my soapbox that I've been standing on all episode and say local is always one of the easiest or safest routes to go because you can make friendships and connections in person and then you can find people that are willing to tout about your book. Um, so that is one way of going about it as opposed to being a faceless stranger. I'm just not clear on your position regarding local, JP. <laughs> I, I think he hates local. Very strongly I wish you'd be a little more, <laughs> get a little more specific with it, would you? I'm going to go in a completely different direction. I'm going to teach ChatGPT to sell my books. Perfect. There you go. Ooh. Um, there was one thing that, uh, I noticed during the interview where we were talking about, um, like getting in contact with the experts of certain topics and, and figuring out how to maybe learn or do some research through talking with the experts. Obviously there's the Google route of making sure that you know something beforehand, but really, um, my experience with professors at colleges is they, they love this stuff. Uh, so always try to figure out you know, what professors in your area, what professors at the colleges near you are doing research in these sorts of things. You can always use Google Scholar and look up their names and see what papers they write. They would obviously love it if you knew a little bit about them. Um, But yeah, they they love this stuff. So I would say don't be afraid to message a professor about some crazy idea because they would love to go down that route with you. Just to wrap this up, if, if you're Sorry. if you're an indie published author, or you're a new author, um, and you're not familiar with um, with Dan's first book, Demon, um, is it Demon or Damon? Damon, I think it is. Um, he says Damon. I can never get the pronunciation. Yeah, we'll yeah. Go, so we'll go with Damon. Um, we'll go definitely research research that because the way that played out, um, it's very similar to the Andy Weir story. So he basically self published yeah. it, um, started selling a few copies, and started selling a few more. Then he got to the point where he was selling a thousand. You know, I think he said in a day or a week or so. But he started selling in significant numbers, um, and that's when the agents and the traditional publishers really started beating on his door. Um, at that point, when he was able to sit down at that conference table, he could put spread sheets in front of everybody and he could say look the book is selling like this right now here's the current audience this is how it's doing you know what can you do for me what can you do that i can't do on my own how are we going to take this to the next level he basically walked into that meeting in a position of power and that that's where you want to mm-hmm. be um because in in most experiences if you talk to an author you know that it's it's a complete flip of that you know you find an agent you know you're lucky enough to find an agent you're lucky enough to get a publisher you're lucky enough to get a contract and you basically sign whatever you can um to to move forward with that book um and you know it's 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 really a, the way he played it if you can somehow finagle that and get it to work is is the way to make it happen um i had a similar thing with with forsaken you know like i sold a quarter million copies of that before i signed a traditional deal i couldn't get an agent and a publisher to talk to me before that book came out but once i could put those those numbers in front of them i ended up with a seven figure deal for that second book um yeah. you know so if, if you're able to get the numbers behind you you can you can command that you can you can run the show yeah i i have a friend uh, actually a few friends that were traditionally published and they bought their rights back because they were doing much better being self-published, you know, compared to what, how they were doing as traditionally published and they're making very good livings. Yeah. It's out there. If you can, if you can hunt it down, you can, if you can figure out the formula. Uh, so JD, who's up next week? 
Um, next week, we've got William Landy coming on. He's a New York Times bestselling author of numerous thrillers. Uh, his last book was called Defending Jacob. It was made into a series for Apple uh, Apple Plus, I think it's called, starring uh, Chris Evans. It's a really cool series. Um, his next book is called All That Is Mine I Carry With Me and releases March 7th. Um, so he's going to be on to talk about it. That sounds great. I can't wait. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode. Have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.